Hey there, Greybeardians. Welcome back, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Cybersecurity Graybeard, the podcast that helps students, early professionals, and retrainees learn, grow, and advance in the cybersecurity profession. Make sure to email questions, comments, and episode recommendations to cybergraybeard at gmail.com. This episode veers away from my normal cybersecurity topics. However, I find questions about finances arise often when talking with students and early professionals. While I'm not a certified financial advisor, I do have a degree in economics and over 30 years investing experience. My father was a financial advisor for over 40 years, and he's educated me about finances my entire life. To this day, he helps me. We still discuss finances, and he is a wealth of information. I'm going to share tips that I follow, that my father taught me, that I've taught my kids and helped friends and colleagues with for over three decades. Please note these are suggestions and recommendations and I'm not to be held liable or responsible for others' investing decisions. Season 3, Episode 4 is entitled Cybersecurity Graybeard Financial Guidance. Let's begin. The first one, and there are 15 of these, not inclusive, not all-inclusive by any stretch of the imagination, but these are 15 that I really stand by. Number one, time is your friend. The earlier you begin saving, the better off you will be. A claim exists that Einstein stated compound interest to be the most powerful force in the universe. Whether he said it or not doesn't really make any difference. The point stands. If you have $10 and you return 10% over a year, in 7.2 years, you will have $20. And that works like this. After the first year, if you have 10, you return 10% and reinvest that 10%, you have 11. After another year, you have 12.1. After another year, you have 13.31. And on and on until after 7.2 years, at 10%, you have 20. To further this concept, it's the rule of 72. You can Google it, look it up. The rule of 72 states that at 10%, a quantity doubles in 7.2 years. At 7.2%, a quantity doubles every 10 years. At 3.6%, a quantity will double every 20 years. You take this idea, if you have $1,000 at age 22, and you average 7.2 interest yearly, which is extremely doable, you're going to have $2,000 when you're 32. You'll have $4,000 when you're 42, $8,000 at 52, $16,000 at 62, and when you're 72 years old, that $1,000 is now worth $32,000. Even if you don't add another penny, in 50 years, you take one and you turn it into $32,000. That's if you don't add any more money, just by reinvesting your dividends and interest. Use that concept for the retirement methodology, really for any investment, but definitely the long term. Just again, understand that you have to reinvest the dividends and the interest. That's how you get the compounding of it. Again, if you have $1,000, you put it in a bank and you average 7.2% in 50 years, that $1,000 is now worth $32,000. Extrapolate that out by investing and adding to it and you can see how it is not too difficult to have a million dollars by the time you retire. If you follow the rule of 72 and these other concepts that I'm going to talk about. Number three is always invest in your company's 401k, at least what they match. If the company matches 100% of a 4% contribution, save at least 4% of your income into the 401k. If they match 100% of the first 4% and 50% of the next 2%, then you should save 6%. This is free money. That is basically getting a 5% raise. 5%, you ask, how did I get that? Well, 100% of 4% is 4%. 50% of the next 2% equals 1%. The 4 plus 1 is 5 The bottom line here is whatever the company matches, you should invest. 
I recommend you do more and I'll explain that momentarily, but at least invest the minimum that the company will match. This is free money from the employer and all concepts I state above for compounding interest stand not only for what you save, it also goes for the free money match your employer provides. If your company does not offer a 401k, make sure your future employers do. A 401k along with healthcare are the greatest benefits that an employer offers. If you don't receive that from your company, you may want to consider it when you look for another job or maybe even look for another one because that's normally a 4 to 6% raise right off the bat. Dollar cost average. This is number five. Dollar cost averaging removes the gambling aspect to investing. Invest regularly, periodically, whether it's weekly, every pay period, every month, take birthday money, take holiday money. When you receive money, save and you do it over time. Don't worry about the price of what you invest in. As you buy over time, some purchases will be higher, others will be lower. Your cost basis will average out over time. That is dollar cost averaging. On the third of the month, you may buy it at $3. And on the 15th of the month, when you get paid again, you may buy it at $2 and your average is now $2.50. And then you average that over time and you'll see that sometimes it's high, sometimes it's low. You want a dollar cost average because you're never gonna time the market. That's number six. You're never gonna time the market. Don't think, oh, the market went up today, I'm not gonna buy, or oh, it went down, I'm gonna buy. This is why dollar cost averaging makes the most sense. You buy each period and wherever the asset, whether it's a stock, a mutual fund, an ETF, a bond, commodities, etc., wherever it sits out at that time, the buy occurs, no matter what the market did that day. I did this over 20 years ago to save for my daughter's college and it worked perfectly. They both graduated with money in the bank and zero student loans. You can do this too. Again, I'm not a professional investor. I just know about these things. And I've been fortunate that I've taken advantage of what I've learned from my father and from mistakes that I've made over 30 years. And I'm trying to share that with you. Now, again, I know that this is a cybersecurity podcast. I just have a lot of friends and a lot of mentees and a lot of people that reach out to me and ask for advice on these concepts. So I wanted to do a episode on this. That's number six. Number seven, save what you can and increase it as your salary increases. When I was 26 for the college, I was only able to save $50 a month. That was basically $12.50 a week. And then it grew over time. When I received raises and my wife received raises, we increased it slowly and then it was up to $250 a month. We increased it fivefold by the time they were in middle school, which was again 12 years later. We didn't stop and wait until we made enough money because you're never going to feel like you make enough money. Don't expect to save everything at once. It's not going to happen in a month, a week, a year, or a decade. Like a lot of the other things I talk about, saving is a lifelong journey. You hear me talk about it. The financial well-being is another example of a journey. It's not just about our mental well-being, our emotional well-being, our professional status. We are not going to get everything in a day. We're not going to get everything in one simple time period. Life is a journey. Investing is a journey. And understand that and put away what you can. And I say 50 a month and you may laugh at me. Fine. Do $10 a month. That's $250 a week. What one of the things that people say is if you do Starbucks every day and it's $6 a cup, that's $30 a week. Well, do coffee Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or cut it back to a $4 cup. Find little ways that you can get the money and you save it, and then it grows over time based off of what I said at the start of the episode. This one's really important. This is number eight. Know the difference between investing and gambling. Day trading is gambling. I don't care what anybody says. Day trading is gambling. I've done it 100%. There is no difference between putting $100 on a horse race or a hockey game and buying a stock on Monday and selling it on Thursday. Investing follows the concepts that I talk about above. Dollar cost averaging, putting money away regularly. Investing is a long-term endeavor. Gambling looks for a quick hit. 
Research the difference if you don't understand where I'm coming from on this concept is it's a critical point. If you think you can buy Bitcoin and you're hearing Bitcoin is hot and you're going to make money and you're going to retire in three weeks because Bitcoin this, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, not going to happen. You think Bitcoin's a great investment? People that gambled and bought it, ask the ones that bought it at 60000 how they're doing now that it's down in the 35000 range. It's like Vegas with gambling. You hear the winners, you don't hear the losers. It's the same thing with investing. Everybody likes to talk about, oh, I bought Bitcoin at $10, now it's $30,000, and i am a millionaire. What about the people that bought high? It's the same thing with what happened at GameStop a few months ago. People were all talking about how much money they made. That stock went from $20 up to $480. I believe it went to $480. What about the people that bought it up in the $480 range, or even the $420 range? Ask them how they're doing now that it's down in the 150 range or that it went under 100. It is so fluctu- uh, It fluctuates so much. It is so volatile. It is gambling. It is not investing. I am here to talk about investing. Please, again, research if you don't know the difference between the two. Investing is a long-term endeavor. Gambling is looking for a quick hit. If you want the quick hit, go to Vegas, go to Atlantic City. Do not go to Wall Street. Number nine, Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors of all time. If you've never heard of him, look him up. He really is brilliant. He has two principles that I like to follow. Number one, invest in what you know. I know technology and technology companies. My father to this day, he asks me my opinion on companies because he knows I know the industry. In the past, when I bought individual stocks, which I don't do anymore, I put money into companies that I know, trust, and understand. I did not invest in food growers or in healthcare or in automobile manufacturers because I don't know those industries. I don't know what makes them go up, what makes them go down. Warren Buffett says, invest in what you know. The second one, and this is critical. If I were 22 years old all over again, I would follow the second piece of advice. This is what I tell my kids. This is what I tell my friends that ask. Anyone that wants to know about investing, and this is critical, this one item is exactly what I do now and I would do if I was 22 years old all over again. You ready? Here we go. Invest in index funds. Do not look at them every day or even every week. Add money over time as I talked about and look at the total quarterly or yearly. Don't get emotionally invested. Put it in an index fund. I'm not gonna give individual names. If you wanna reach out to me, I will talk with you about them. But when I say an index fund, it is something from a company like Vanguard or Invesco or Schwab or Fidelity, and they invest in the S&P 500 and spread the money out, or they invest in the NASDAQ, or they invest in the Dow. And there are all kinds of indexes and index funds. Investing in index funds is a way to diversify With professionals managing the money, you put some money in every period. Again, it's a week, it's a month, it's a paycheck, whatever it is. Add money on the birthdays or on the holidays. That is what Warren Buffett suggests, and that's what I suggest. I will say this. When I was in my mid-20s, I did create one account like this, and it was for my wife at the time, so she had a little extra retirement. She was in the Air Force. She had the retirements there. But I set her up in our mid-20s with an index fund, and she still has that today. Again, that is the number one recommendation. Put money into an index fund, ETF, mutual fund. I'm going to actually get into that right now, which is number 10. ETFs are exchange-traded funds. Mutual funds are mutual funds. I prefer the ETF for two reasons. Number one, ETFs allow you to set a stop loss. A stop loss is an open order where you're telling the broker, sell if the price goes down to this percent or by this dollar amount. 
at this price, sell it. That is a way to protect from a major decrease in the market. If the market goes down 10, 15, 20% in a day and you can't log in or you don't know what's going on, having a stop loss protects you. The second thing, ETFs have a lower expense ratio, they cost less. I don't know a lot about this piece, I'm not going into detail, you can look it up. The bottom line though is it costs less money to own an ETF than it does to own a mutual fund. The brokers, they need to make money somehow and they do it off of a percentage of what we investors invest. The ETF's expense ratio is what it's called, is less than a mutual fund. Take a look at that. Understand, this is number 11, understand that mutual funds and ETFs overlap their holdings. If you say you have an ETF or a mutual fund based on the S&P 500, whether it's Vanguard, Fidelity, Invesco, Schwab, as I said before, whomever, if they have an index fund based on the S&P 100, they most likely hold the same companies. There are 500 firms in the S&P 500, obviously. There's an S&P 100. There are growth stocks. There are income stocks. And there are index funds that focus on those. There are only a finite number of companies, and a lot of these firms want to invest in the big guns. FANG, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google. That's a well-known one. If you buy a Fidelity index fund, an Invesco index fund, and you have 50% of your money in each, go look and see what they're investing in. In all likelihood, they're both are investing in the FANGs of the world, the Microsofts, etc. So you're really not diversified. You just have it diversified between the company that owns the fund, but you don't have a diversification in the companies that are owned if Fang went down one day, both the Invesco and Schwab would take a hit. That's why you may want to put some money into something different. And I think I talk about diversification later. If I don't, I'll try and bring it up. But diversify. To have true diversification, you need to own funds based on different strategies. Again, there's a growth strategy, an income strategy. You can invest in dividend stocks or mutual funds or bonds for dividends. There's large cap, small cap, mid cap, etc. There's global. There are up and coming countries like India and Malaysia, Brazil. Uh, it's called BRIC actually, Brazil, Russia, India, China. All kinds of ways to invest. But when you do it, and I guess this is my point on diversification, I'll just get it out of the way right here. Know that you have money in the S&P 500, great. And then you may want to invest in the Russell and then a little bit in the Dow. And maybe you want to throw a little bit into the world markets. Look up diversification, but understand that if you have ETFs from different companies and they are on the S&P 500, they very well may own the same stock. So you're really not that diversified. That was number 11. Number 12, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Do not be greedy. If you're dealing with individual assets that are way up, sell a portion and take out your initial investment so you're playing with quote unquote house money. I'm going to give a great example of this. One of my mentees came to me and he said, I was fortunate enough to invest in Bitcoin a few years ago. I am up quite a bit. What should I do? And my answer was, get out. I think Bitcoin is a scam. Take your money and run. He didn't agree with me. And what he said was, you know what? I'm going to just take out my initial investment and let the rest run. I love that answer. That is a great answer, it's a financially wise answer, and it is not an emotional answer. And I will say this, one of the reasons that I don't invest in individual stocks anymore is because I'm stubborn, I'm emotional, and I'm arrogant. I think I know better than the market, I think I know better than the, the, the professionals, and I've made so many bad decisions over the years that I finally now, at 50, have said, you know what, to hell with it, I'm going to follow Warren Buffett, I'm going to do ETFs, and I'm going to just dollar cost average that way, and I'm staying away from individual stocks. I learned some lessons and I'm hoping to share those with you now. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. If you're way up on something that's an individual stock, sell it off 
and then take the sell off a portion of it and then take that and invest it into something else. Number 13, there's such a thing as good debt. If you have a mortgage at 4% and you can invest money at 6%, that makes sense. I could pay off my house today if I wanted to. I don't want it. My mortgage is at 4%. I'm invested in the market right now and the market is hot. I'm diversified. I have stop losses. I'm protected. I will not pay off my mortgage because I'd rather take that money and invest it and make 10%, 12%. And that's actually what I'm doing. I'm making way more than I would make if I paid off the mortgage. Now, this is a riskier method. And if you're extremely averse to risk and or you can't sleep because you have debt, don't follow this method. My father said to me once, if you can't sleep because of your financial decisions, change your financial decisions. Your emotional well-being, your psychological well-being are critical. I have a friend who paid for a car flat out when it was 0%. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Why would you pay a full $15,000 for a car, this was 20 years ago, when you can get 0%? And my friend looked at me simply and he said, because I can't sleep when I have debt. I don't want debt. I don't want to owe anybody a penny. And I said, you know what, Russell? Good answer. No problem. From a financial standpoint, that's not the right thing financially, but from an emotional standpoint, it was a perfect answer and I use the example today as I just did. There is such a thing as good debt, but don't get emotional and if you are, then just change what you're doing. If you need to pay off those credit cards, which you need to do because they have way too high of interest rates, you're going to be lucky to make 10, 12% right now in the market and credit card debt is 17, 20, 25%. So you want to pay those off and I'll get to that shortly. Uh, just keep in mind though, as I'm saying, there is such a thing as good debt. If you can get a car loan under 4%, don't pay cash for the car like Russell did. Take the money that you would pay for the car and put it in an ETF or a dividend. What I do instead of paying off the house is I pay, I put it into a mutual fund and it's growing. And when I see the market cool off, I'll pull money out. And if it goes really bad, then I pay off the house so I don't need to worry about it. But right now, while the market is moving, and it has for years, and with all the infusion of cash, I see the, uh, a lot of that still happening. So I'm not going to do that. So again, number 13, there is such a thing as good debt. Number 14, simultaneously save and pay down debt. While I say there is good debt, there's also bad debt. and You need to both make sure you're saving and paying down debt. If you have student loan debt, a card debt, and credit card debt, make sure you pay the highest interest rate as fast as possible and pay the minimum on the others. When that high interest rate goes away, take what you were using to pay down that debt and put it towards the next highest interest rate. While doing this, make sure you follow item three above which is what I was talking about the 401k. So you're always gonna be saving into the 401k, but you also need to pay down debt. Invest in the 401k, pay down your debt. When the debt goes away, use the money to pay off others. I also suggest at least putting away 50 to $100 a month in a savings account. So you do the 401k and then you have a savings account and then you pay down debt. You're gonna to need to move these numbers around based off of your cash flow, meaning how much money's coming in versus what's going out. You have to pay your healthcare, you have to pay your rent or mortgage, you have to pay for your car, you have to pay for food and gas. You don't need the entertainment, you don't need the new clothes, you don't need the books, you don't need the Starbucks. So if you need money, look at what you're spending it on, deal with the budget, and stop spending in unnecessary areas until you have the ability to put in the minimum to your 401k, paying down your debt, and also putting away $50 to $100 a month into a savings account. And then increase that savings as your debt begins to go away. Number 15, and I'm just about done here, is that I, three, I see three types of savings. There's short term, which is an emergency fund, medium term car down payment, house down payment, braces for the kids or other healthcare related expenses, and long term kids college and retirement. 
long-term takes precedence for me and then short and then medium. I, you have to say for retirement, and it goes back to number one, time is your friend. You need to be putting money away for retirement. And if nothing else, the minimum for the 401k is absolutely a must. You have to do that. You need to consider that as a requirement, just like you have mortgage and a car payment. If you cannot cover a $400 emergency bill today, a vet bill, your car breaks down, you have a copay, make sure you get that immediately. And this is really the first thing. If you don't have $400 squirreled away, I would say even hold off on the 401k until you get this because God forbid your car breaks down and now you can't get to work or you have an injury and you can't pay the copay. Make sure that you can have a $400 emergency. Now, my understanding is today, 60% of Americans cannot pay an emergency $400 bill, and that's crazy. You need to make sure that you have that saved. Other than that, follow what I've said above about the retirement, the short term, increase your savings as your income increases. That's mostly it. It's a lot, and it's not all by a long shot. You may wanna to listen to this again in a few weeks or maybe in a year after you start to take the steps. Listen again and go back and see how you're doing. I didn't talk about budgeting, it's important. Most people know about it. If you don't, go ahead and look it up. The concept of budgeting is see how much money you have coming in, write down what your bills are, and then see what the difference is, and then determine what you can pay for and what you have as disposable income. In other words, disposable income after all the savings has happened, all of your bills are paid, all your insurance, everything is done, and whatever's left over, that's disposable income. Save it. If you want, go treat yourself to something, but you need to understand that you need to follow these rules if you want to make sure that you're going to be comfortable in retirement. Look at budgeting. I did not talk about specific funds or stocks. I don't want to do that. I have thoughts and I'll tell people individually if you want to reach out. But again, I'm not a financial advisor. These are my opinions, my thoughts, my recommendations. I didn't go into different investment types. Again, the growth, the income, the dividend. I didn't talk about asset types. There are REITs, which is a real estate investment trust. There's bonds, there's stocks, there's commodities. I briefly mentioned ETFs and mutual funds that divvy into all of these so we don't have to as individual investors. But again, there's too much out there. There's podcasts dedicated to financial investing. If you found this interesting, you may want to check one of those out. My talk here is really just a basic primer for friends, which I consider all of you friends. And it's based on my experience and what I've learned. With that said, next week we're going to get back to cybersecurity and I'm actually going to be doing the book reviews that I mentioned in the first episode. I'm going to cover four books. I'm going to talk about The Coming Cyber War by Mark Crudgington. I'm going to discuss The Hacker and the State by Ben Buchanan. Definitely going to talk about Sandworm by Andy Greenberg. And a very popular one is Dark Mirror. It's the Edward Snowden story by Barton Gelman. Four books. I've really enjoyed them all. I'm not a big reader, so for me to finish these and to tell you about it, personally, I think that's a nice accomplishment for me and maybe a little bit of a boost for you. And if you don't have the time to do all this because of your studying, your certifications, getting into your job, maybe you can listen to that and decide of the four which one will work the best for you. As always, if you have questions, write me at cybergraybeard at gmail.com. I'm a mentor and a guide for life, not just cybersecurity, as I talked about here. Reach out. I'm here to help. You're not alone. I do this because I want to help you. I look forward to your emails, and I thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.